0: Welcome to the Meditation Ward. My name is Nadia Ward, and I'm really excited to bring you this podcast. I talk to a lot of meditation practitioners about their practice and what led them into meditation and what keeps them there. I hope you enjoy it. Each week, we have a second episode where you get a guided meditation. So you can come back and use those whenever you need them, and they're there for you. Are you interested in starting your own meditation practice? Check out TheMeditationWard.com where I offer a six-week program to work with you one-on-one to teach you meditation tools and to help you find a practice that works for you and your lifestyle. I'm also a health and wellness coach certified through Georgetown University. So if you're interested in wellness coaching through a meditative perspective, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Contact me at TheMeditationWard.com or find us on Instagram, The Meditation Ward. And now our episode... I'm really excited today to get to have Joy Polferon with us. She is an incredible woman, a beautiful yoga and meditation teacher, and has done a lot of other cool stuff along the way. She actually got her undergrad and graduate degree and PhD from UVA in chemistry. She's a director of health innovation from the Virginia Commonwealth University Da Vinci Center for Innovation. She was also an integral part of early scientific and strategic development of the Focus Ultrasound Foundation, where she also helped launch a patient support organization for people with uterine fibroids. So, on top of all of that scientific stuff, she's also been a yoga and meditation teacher and practitioner for over 20 years. Hi, Joy. Hi. <laughs> Where do you have time for all of that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and now you're a medit- now you're a coach as well.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: How do you find the time?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a long life there. Like, I, I started practicing yoga in my late teens. Um, I became a teacher before I was 21, um, and so. I've had 20 plus years of, of time in that practice that I think ran in the background in the beginning, you know, and then moved its way more and more into the foreground of my life. And, and I would almost say more and more to the center of my life. Um, but yeah, I was always really curious. I was always a seeker. Um, I was always a, like an inquisitive questioner of how things worked and sometimes, really obnoxious <laughs> about my, um, my doubting of things. Um, so in my teens and twenties, and especially I spent a lot of time looking at different religions and trying to understand them. And then also trying to reconcile what I felt with what I, I read. And only now can I see how much that was such a deep part of my journey, like integrating head and heart and really learning to put more of myself into the physical body in order to feel and sense and experience the divine. Were you raised
0: up religiously? Were you raised
1: like that? Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my dad is from a big, huge, actually Italian Catholic family. So Catholicism was part of my childhood, um, my mom converted to Catholicism when she raised my da- when she married my dad, and so we were raised Catholic. Um, but my parents got divorced when I was twelve, and so that created this really strong fissure in in my own sort of connection to a religious faith that felt incongruent with the life that my my family was having, you know, and the sort of experience that we were having. So. Um, I was at an age where I was probably, I probably started questioning things from the time that I was able to talk, (laughs) but um, I was at an age then where I was really like things that felt out of sync really registered with me as out of sync. Um, So I think that in its own way started this spiral of me kind of going further and further away from Catholicism and, Christianity, um, and deeper and deeper into my body. And then now coming back to sort of see an integrated view of, of those religions and the physical experience of yeah, energy in our bodies, you know, the divine, but as a kid, I mean, there was a lot of shitting in my life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, we laugh about it a lot. Like, it's like, well, oh, you just shit all over that. You know, <laughs> it's like, there is a lot of shitting. You know, you should do this. You should do that. You should be this. Um, and I love the way that, that Ram Dass talks about it is this, this this thing of becoming somebody. You know, we spend our whole lives becoming somebody and people, you know, congratulate us, pat us on the back because, oh, you've really made it. You're really somebody. And, um, really what we're here to do is, is to become nobody. And that feels super scary when you're, you know, spent your whole life in a space where being a good girl, being a good person, being a good daughter, being a good sister, being a good human, although I don't know that that phrase was ever used, um, looks a certain way and it, it takes a certain type of clothes and house, and there's a certain number of steps in the process. And so I had a lot of that, you know, I mean, like if you ask how I ended up with a PhD in chemistry, it's like, well, I wanted to be a doctor because I had this like altruistic thing in me, this idea that I could like save the world. Um, And I liked chemistry more than I liked biology because biology was a lot of memorization and chemistry was understanding processes and systems. And then when I finished undergrad, I didn't know what else I was gonna do and grad school seemed like the next best thing Um, and turned out to be like very much the next best thing for me. But I wouldn't say that I was um, in a place in my own development where I understood the pieces that were getting dropped into, into space in my path and how powerfully divine they were, you know? So science for me is, is just another system. Like it's chemistry and looking at the human body. I studied cancer immunology. Um, that's another system being in a yoga pose and feeling and sensing and experiencing that is a system it's my it's a system I'm embodying you know in the moment but it's different every day there are variables that affect it um the the curious observer can sort of sit and watch and so the yoga practice for me was like always running alongside the scientific work that I I was doing or the people or organizational work I was doing it was always like Bringing more and more of those pieces that I would see as a practitioner or a teacher into the team I worked in or the organization I was leading or a problem I was solving it's like oh this this actually makes total sense there is not a either or there's a yes and to all of this so so yeah yeah yeah.
0: <laughs> Did, um, were there times in your life where you completely dropped off of your
1: practice, it's like in grad school or when you were busy or? No. Um, so, I mean, the short answer is no, the more specific answer is yes. Um, and what I mean when I say that is that I was, now that I see yoga as this, you know, the eight limbs of yoga and the different layers of, of, and, and styles of, of yoga that you can practice. And I was always living it. I just didn't always know it. Um, so the way that I would listen to philosophy, you know, as uh, i listen to a book on tape of Eckhart Tolle or Pema Chodron or, or some of these things. I didn't think of those as yoga. I thought of those as sanity, (laughs) stability, Mm -hmm. you know, like keeping me afloat amidst a lot of craziness. Um, but they were, of course, you know, yoga, it just wasn't something that I, they were Dharma talks or, or they were, you know, meditation practices. Um, or opportunities to learn from another teacher but no I mean I had um, I now see I had I had really severe anxiety um, which then found its way into become depression when I was a teenager um, and I had an eating disorder and so what got me on the mat the first time was like Gwyneth Paltrow and Madonna <laughs> they were doing a Shtanga yoga and I was like Oh, this is my next fad, you know. And, yeah. Um. And I, I got into it, and it, I was a gymnast growing up, so I was really physical, um, really capable of physical things. And so it was like, oh, I can do that. Like this is no big deal. And I'll never forget going into a level three, four ashtanga class in Charlottesville, Virginia, and and being like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I mean, I, I went into it from the physical and the sort of seeking some element of perfection, but what it gave me over the years was a lot of opportunities to see my own body and my own experience of this life as not about that at all, you know? So it's really interesting to me because I I think I might've taken steps away from my practice at points in time, but now when I look back at it, there was never a moment where I wasn't in some type of practice. You know, it was, it was always, there was always a teaching. <laughs> it was <Yeah. laughs> sometimes hitting me over the head, but, but really through the thread of having anxiety and depression and going on medication to manage that and not being monitored on medication while managing that. And then getting to a space where I was like, I think I can go off of this. I think I can stop this, but not knowing how, you know, and, um, and then there were points in time where, I mean, John kabat din says that, you know, like meditate, like, like your life depends on it because it does. Like, I felt that, like, I felt that acutely. Yeah. <laughs> I must, I must be doing these practices or I will not survive. Um, or I will not, I certainly won't thrive, you know? So, so yeah, I, I think, there have been things that I thought were deviations. And in fact, they were just taking me around the bend to bring me back more strongly. You know, they were always teaching me something.
0: I have a question about something you mentioned earlier, which was, um, we all wanna be somebody, but Mm -hmm. like you learn there's most to be nobody. (laughs) I don't think I've ever really heard anybody say that before? Like, yeah. what do you think that, I mean, I know we're supposed to be humble and that nobody's more important than the next person or your mm-hmm. anything else, but like, what does being a nobody look like in the realm of your practice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a, is a phrase that, um, Ram Das has has said a lot, um, in his teachings. And so if, if we think about, you know, I have kids in my life now, my partner has two boys, they're six and 10. And um, I am very aware of, I try to be very aware of how much I project onto them, the person I think they're supposed to be. You know, this idea of being good at X, Y, Z or, or being, you know, there's all these things that, that we sort of tell somebody makes them, somebody, you know? So like position, power, authority would be an example. So like I worked my way up in a professional career and I got to a place where I was a senior director and part of a management team of a 1.5 billion Euro business. Like that sounds really interesting and like snazzy, right? I had a great salary. I was traveling all over the world, like whatever all that means. And I realized that I wasn't interested in or attached to the position power and authority and the money. And I was in this like sweet spot where, oh, if I stay longer, I might start to really like this. And this might start to be how I define myself. I define myself as a scientist or a daughter or a um, marketing leader or a yoga teacher or a runner or a vegetarian or a cancer survivor, or like, you know, like all of those things, I have not had cancer, but I use that as an example because there's like a disease identification thing that happens. So there's all of these like identifications of the person Mm -hmm. and in all of those things, there's an element of attachment to the identity and, and what Ram Dass teaches and Buddhist meditations teachers talk a lot about is that that attachment is actually the ego grabbing on and reinforcing an element of expectation, you know, this sort of attraction aversion cycle. Well, if I'm a yoga teacher, I need to be a vegetarian. I need to be vegan. Like there's, there's like, I, I, I should do this and, and that, You know, there's all these sort of requirements that come around these things and very rarely do they, well, maybe they never come from the central awareness within ourselves that says, I feel really clear and aware and present when I'm walking in the woods, you know, because walking in the woods is not something that somebody would be like super jazzed about, you know, like these projections of the becoming somebody. And the way that Ram Dass talks about it is like, you know, he worked, he got his graduate degree in psychology, got this big position at Harvard, and he was really somebody. And and I really do, having listened to a lot of his podcasts and, and read quite a bit of his work over the last few years, I'm blown away by how much I was at that inflection point of getting attached to being somebody And I certainly still, you know, sort of find my, my, okay, like, what is, what is this thing? Like, why do I want this job? Or why do I want this type of work? Is it because I want to be somebody? Is it because I want somebody else to think that my life is of worth or value or purpose? Um, And then what's at the root of that? You know, So if we think of the chakra system, like, am I disconnected from the root, from the earth, from a sense of safety or stability or, Um, is my willpower um, poorly nourished or developed, you know, so like, what's at the root of of my desire for somebody else to tell me I'm somebody. Um, And this idea of becoming nobody is, is unplugging really from the attachments to that identity, that, that there's an element of I'm here to be in this process of life, in this particular incarnation. And in that experience, I will learn all the things I need to learn. I won't learn them. The more I attach to something, the more likely my learnings will be uh, attached to suffering. The more likely I will suffer through the learnings. And so the way to get to peace and contentment and yeah, this thing, I think we're here to do, which whether it happens for me in this lifetime is probably pretty unlikely, but maybe it'll be another five or 200, I don't know. But this place of like alignment with pure consciousness, you know, and so What's really trippy, and I love he uses those types of words, like well, what's really trippy about all of this is that we have so many messages from the outside that we should do this, or we're going to feel great when we accomplish this thing, or, you know, that being in a relationship is going to make us happy, or like all of these sorts of things, you know, that are all just layers of identity. And they just get like, I always imagine it like barnacles on a boat. They just get thicker and thicker and thicker. And you don't move very quickly through the water when you've got that many barnacles on the boat. And so, yeah, I mean, he explains it so much more <laughs> eloquently than I could for sure. Um, but just this idea that the suffering we experience in life is through the attachment to the somebodying and that. The more we distance and do the work in coming into center of ourselves, become less somebody and more nobody, um, the more ease and contentment we will have in living this life, you know? And so it's a really weird, it's like a paradox, but it's not paradoxical when you're in it. Yeah. Oh um, yeah,
0: you've made a big change recently from going from being like a single woman into now being married with stepchildren, like quite quickly. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot of like lessons that you're having to learn about yourself. Yes. Really quickly. Or you can hurt a lot of people. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially myself, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, what kind of things have you been learning? Oh gosh, the most present one right now. And it's been so so maybe just for those who don't know this, like um my partner and I met in March of 2020. Um we moved in together in September of 2020 and we got married in June of 21. Um through the course of the the first two years of our relationship, really the after the first six months or so, we were pregnant six times and we had uh, multiple miscarriages. Well, we had six miscarriages. Um, and we, he had two boys that were, when we met four and eight and, um, gosh, so little. And so when we moved in together, it was a very, it, there were a lot of factors bringing us into that. And I, I really can look back on it and say like, wow, the universe is pushing us together and really creating opportunities for me to work through stuff that I probably wouldn't have worked through as quickly if I didn't have those experiences. You know, like, what does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a mother? Like, what does that role look like? And, um, how do how do I feel that it's showed up in my own childhood and upbringing and how do I want to show up as a person in that type of role as a parent for children that I didn't I didn't bring into this world through my body but were certainly brought into this world in connection with me in some way so when we finally decided to stop trying to we we didn't actually really try we were one of those strange couples that never had trouble getting pregnant we just I 42. And so um, I was 40 when we were first pregnant and it was just a higher likelihood that I would miscarry because those are 40, 40 some year old eggs and that's just how it goes. Um, And so there was a lot of experiencing of that and of, of letting go of an idea of something that. I don't think I ever really allowed for, you know, just, I was on this travel and professional and and really explorers path that when I met Nick, I was kind of dumbstruck that like, I could meet somebody that I would have so much resonance with, that it would feel so easy to be in relationship with him and that even the difficult stuff would feel, um, Navigable, like that we could just we we knew how to communicate and support each other, and our experiences separately brought us into a space where together we could be in a deep relationship. Um, but a lot of the last couple of years has pushed into what is autonomy, what is independence? You know, like I. I joke that I consult like six calendars before I make a plan Mm -hmm. um, because I've got like my work calendars, um, my family calendar, our family calendar, Nick's calendar. It's probably more than six, you know? So, so there's like that, that sense of a thing that might've taken just a like, oh yeah, what am I doing that weekend in October? It takes, it's a lot of work now, you know? So there's these like Variables that I now have in my life that are layered, um, and then there's the other, you know, more value-based things. So I was just about to say the word value.
0: Yeah, values. I've been thinking a lot about values lately, and it's like, mm-hmm. well, what are your values, and what are your priorities, and are they lining up together? And if they're not, how can you bring your values into? Because nothing yes. else really matters. Who you're going to show who you are if you don't understand your values?
1: Yes. 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 I love this. (laughs) This is like one of my, I I also really favorite topics because, um, so over the last 15 years, I've done a ton of work in organizational design and team development, and that's brought me into coaching work. And, And I didn't realize how much I was already doing the work of coaching without knowing that was what I was doing. Um, but probably about 10 years ago now, I did this exercise with my team where we went through and we said, okay, like, what are your top five personal values? And then let's come together and let's talk about what those are so we understand each other better. And where do they come from? You know, what's underneath them? How did they form? What was the story behind why equity is really important to you or why uh, financial security is really important to you? Because they all come from somewhere. There's like this, this experiential life that we've had that has shaped the development of our values And the image of the iceberg is always really great for me because the values are what's underneath the iceberg. And then above the iceberg are all the behaviors that people witness. And the first challenge is a lot of people don't know what their values are. You know, it's like, I've never really thought about it. like, Or they don't know what they're implicitly valuing by taking certain actions in their life. Like I might say, I love local businesses and mom and pop shops and i really want to support them but i might really value convenience and so amazon delivers to my door way more frequently than i would like to admit you know and so like we literally just had this conversation this morning about when we can order things or purchase things through local vendors let's try to make that choice wherever we can but it's hard because it takes real effort to align your behaviors and your actions with your values and so I've spent a long time thinking about this. Like, this is like too much, probably like way, way, way too much. Not, not surprising for me. I spend lots of time thinking about lots of things. But um, for me, values are at the core of whether or not I'm working in an organization that I'm going to enjoy working for and with. Because if my value is around... Um, Let's say transparency, and that's not something that they value. I'm going to feel this constant rub in the organization, and I'm not going to be able to articulate it. If I come into a relationship with somebody and my values, and this has been my Nick's experience, my values are super clear, like scary shark. And I've I've gone through this place of like auditing time and sort of saying, like, do I put my time in the places where I've said I value? And Looking at how do I plan vacations over a year because I want to see family and I want to make sure that I prioritize that. So, like, there's all sorts of ways in which I've done this, um, moderately obsessively, but like definitely done it. Um, and he had never done a values exercise, and and so when we sat down, it was two years ago now, almost exactly. We went away for a weekend, and before we moved in together, we said. What are your values? What are my values? And then what are our shared values for the home we want to create? Like, what do we want? What do we want our home to feel like? Um, and how do we make that a reality? So we talked a lot about play and how important it was for us that the boys were in a home that evidenced both stability and security and play and laughter. And that that's sometimes in conflict because, Rules are really useful, you know, parameters and boundaries are really helpful. And then how do you create an environment where spontaneous dance parties happen, you know? Okay. And it's like, okay, well, that, that takes like a lot of intentionality unless unless it's something that's, that's really autonomic for you. It just happens. Um, so for me, a lot of what coming into relationship with another person has been is a powerful challenge to each of us to say, do my values need to shift? You know, like, and, and when I, what I mean, when I say that is that my definition of valuing family or community looked a certain way before, but it might not look the same anymore. You know, um, especially family, like my valuing of family might involve, I'll say what it does involve, it might involve driving to pick up a 10-year-old from, from sports practice at 9 p.m. when I really want to be in bed, you know, because I value nourishing my body and taking care of myself. And so, ooh, okay, what happens when the thing that I have now come to include in my life presses against another value that I also think is important? And that's fun. Like it's, it's messy and ugly and beautiful and really challenging and fun. And it's fun when you have the difficult conversation and you can differentiate, like the reason I'm so pissed that I'm doing this, you know, sports pickup is because, oh yeah, it's getting at one of my core values and it's in conflict with it. And even though I love the 10 and a half year old in my life. And I love getting to hear the story about his experience from the school day or practice or whatever it is on the drive home. There's an opportunity cost, you know, that that has relative to another place I want to put my energy. So It's freaking hard. Do you ever
0: just decide to sleep and not pick them?
1: up?
0: (laughs) Here's an air mattress, put it in your backpack.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, simply because I think that Nick would get in trouble for that. (laughs) I wouldn't get in trouble for it. Well, I don't know. Maybe I would. Um, Yeah. It's hard. I mean, there are a lot of moments in the last two years where I've been like, Oh my God, I need an escape valve. Like I, I gotta like, go rent a cabin in the woods for a long weekend. I need quiet. I need stillness. I need to be just by myself, you know. Yeah. Um and what's really cool about our relationship is that we we both respect, appreciate and support that need the other person has for like time by ourselves. Yeah. Um to the point where, I mean, I joked with Nick about like, I might go to India for six months. He's like, okay, we'll figure it out. Like, Let's talk about a calendar, you know? And it was like, I was kidding. And he, he's like, 100% serious. Like we'll figure it out. And I, I think that that's the part that's difficult. Maybe when you come into a relationship, when you don't have the level of discernment about what you value and what you need and how to care for yourself. And yeah, maybe there's like 25 year olds that've got that figured out in this, these next generations. But at 25, I was like flailing, you know, pressing into the dark, trying all the different things. And certainly blessed to have had yoga come into my path so young, but was not in a place where I understood those things. Well, I have questions
0: occurring in my mind. <laughs> um, I want to start asking you about, uh, meditation mm. and your meditation practice and what that looks like. But first yeah. I'm curious about your India comment and going to India for six months. Do you believe that there are truly better teachers in India to learn from?
1: Um, so I've traveled to India probably 15 times. Oh,
0: um, I've never been there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I, never been go. There. I haven't ever been there to practice yoga. Um, so, so that's probably the big distinction. Um, I've gone for work. I worked for a global healthcare company, and we had we had products that were in India. We had customers in India. Um, I had a team in India for uh, four years that I would travel to see, usually once a quarter, if not more. Um, so, so for me, um, I don't know that there are, are better teachers per se. I don't know. I haven't studied with anyone in India. I know that um, the the practice of yoga, the philosophy of yoga is integrated into the culture in a way that (laughs) Fox News and football are integrated into U.S. culture, you know? So, like, it's, it's in your face, it's loud, it's present, you can't ignore it. Um, And of course, India is a capitalistic culture too. So there's those elements, but there are people for which from the moment, from before their birth, from before they landed in the body that they're now in, their family was in practice of yoga around, you know, that life coming in. So there's, there's like containers and structures that, make it more, um, I would think, because I haven't studied there. I would think make it more accessible. Um, I also think that, Somebody said this to me when I was doing some really difficult work in India. Like the and it's it's so true. The sensory experience of being in India is, is like nothing a person could describe. I, I haven't traveled to Thailand or other places that are really um, colorful and rich um, with layers, or you know, Indonesia or some of these these cultures. Um, so I can't compare, but but I can say that it's so alive, and everything is is displayed before you, like the the wealth and the poverty the every layer of smell, like the chicken that's walking on the side of the road will be the chicken that you eat for dinner if you have chicken, you know, at the hotel you're staying at. And so like I I gravitated more and more towards vegetarian and veganism living in, you know, like working in India for two weeks at a time. So spending that time there, I was like, oh, that chicken on the side of the road. Like, do I really need that? I don't really need that. Yeah, you know, that doesn't feel that doesn't feel necessary. Um but I, I think, you know, like behind me on the shelf, there's this, this, um, this very thick Bhagavad Gita, which, you know, is given to I me I have by, that one too, the as do it you? Is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is this is the, the Bhagavad Gita that's used by people in India who are studying yoga. You know, it's like, it's, it was given to me by a colleague who said, you've practiced yoga, you're studying yoga, you need this particular version. You can read all the others. And, and I, I feel like I've been reading a lot of the others lately, especially, but, um, but that's just like part of life there. So um, I don't think you have to go to India to study yoga. Um, but when I talk about, you know, I want to go for six months and it's really about retreat and it's about, Leaving the day to day and being in a space and a place of practice that takes me out of, you know, what I'm what I'm always in. And by creating that space, like I do on retreats, uh, there's a container that's really rich. And I haven't yet found that that's coming to the forefront of like my annual planning but you know it'll show up if it's supposed to and and if it's the right time it'll show up um but I did you know there was a point when I took a sabbatical where I thought I need to go spend about six months or a year in India and it didn't feel like it was on my path but had it been that would have been interesting and if it is later that would be interesting but I don't think it's a requirement I think there are beautiful teachers in the West. And their yoga is not, you know, yoga is a is a part of a much larger tapestry of spiritual experience and meditation touches a lot of different places, you know, Christian mysticism and um the Kabbalah and, and Buddhist, like all of these different groups. Like I don't know everything about every religious, you know, sort of discipline but I would say that all of them have meditation in them, you know? And so maybe the path for somebody is to spend time in India and and there's an element of that. Maybe it's to go find a a cabin in the woods in New Hampshire and, you know, go deep into themselves. Yeah. In Christianity,
0: it it would just be to sit in prayer, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. and, And Christianity is really a space that's quite, cool to me. Um, So a few years ago, I started reading a lot about Mary Magdalene, a lot about early Christianity. I I dove into it in my early 20s, but I had kind of set it down for a while. And and when I read the descriptions that Christian mystics used to describe, especially Christ, and and, and, sort of that um, incarnation of God, I, I'm I don't see a difference between what I read in in Buddhism and what I read in Judaism or in a yogic philosophy space. Like I, I really see them all as having the core of an enlightened being that was here to share what they learned so that others could come to know. The God that's inside of them always you know and so yeah it's a really there's a lot of ways in and that's also I think why um, Ram Dass has felt so resonant for me in the last year is that he um, was you know <laughs> the joke really says I'm a Jewish guy from Boston you know <laughs> um, who studied consciousness and um and so he brings in Christianity and Buddhism and Judaism and yoga. And I, I think this idea, oh, it exemplifies the idea that there is no other, that it is all one. And that kind of comes back to the somebodying, you know, like the whole somebodying is, is like, oh, I am. It's all about like who I am becoming and who I am being. But if who I am is just another version of God and who you are is just another version of God, then we are actually the same. And that the energy that's pulsing through both of us is coming from the same source. And all of this differentiation is just all of a somebodying is just taking us further and further away from that source. And so that's for me, very interesting. It's like, huh, same thing in religion, all of this differentiation, all of this, like you must do this to go to heaven. Well, I mean, if, if that's where you want to go, I mean, I don't know that I really want to go to heaven. I, I want to, I want to be able to experience each day in a presence that allows me to feel the energy of my, of my life, um, and of, of this world and to see the magic that's around us all the time. Like that's what I want to experience. And when I die. I have a certain belief about where I go or where the energy goes but the body was just this thing that like carried me through until it was time for me to be done and yeah so the religious piece is so interesting of like do I need to go to India do I need to I I mean the other one too is like all of these um energy vortexes, you know, do I need to go see those places? Well, I have a different meditative experience there. I mean, for me, the answer was yes. Like I definitely had a different meditative experience in Taos, New Mexico than I might've had in another place. But until I got quiet enough to know the difference between what I was feeling in Taos and what I felt in Boston, you know, in my apartment, yeah, it was like I'm just in another place. Yeah. Um,
0: Great so subway. you could go to India and miss
1: it all, you know? Right.
0: Great segue into your meditation practice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What does your
0: meditation practice look like?
1: Yeah, um, meditation for me is 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 a really, oh, it's like um, it's spotty and also simple. And so there are days where there are weeks where I get to meditate for twenty to thirty minutes every day. And then there are weeks where we're moving and life is like a total shit show. And I'm lucky to get to sit for five minutes, you know, or we joke with the 10 and a half year old in our lives that like, go count all the water droplets in the shower. You know, sometimes my meditation practice is like feeling the water droplets touching my skin in the shower or washing a dish and being really present to it, or lingering in bed for 10 minutes to really feel my body waking up into the day, because that's what I've got, you know, and so, so there's the, the formal meditation practice, and sometimes there's an intention around it, sometimes there's something I'm working to cultivate, you know, so in, in Tantra, there is this, practice of, of really getting to clarity in the midbrain and so using this the technology of the physical body to create well to to clear and harness power and energy to then be able to get the mind clear and then to be able to sit in that clarity and then there's the the element of meditation that sometimes is just sitting and allowing the thoughts to all come and watching my mind do what it does my mind likes to plan my mind likes to oh lately so much it likes to plan and it kind of always has and just noticing that and being like okay come back to the breath and then it just does its thing and it's like come back to the breath and and then after a while at times it doesn't go it just stays um so my practice looks Yeah. Different than it did a few years ago, a couple of years ago, pre family kids stuff. It was a little bit more, it looked more the same every day. You know, I wouldn't say that it was better. I would say that like I can sit now and drop in to a place of steadiness much faster, but I also don't get as much of it. I don't have as much time as I as I did for that space before, but it's usually in the morning. That's when I prefer to sit. Um, and it's usually in a particular spot where I have an altar and I light a candle. And sometimes it's after a physical practice. And I would say that happens two or three days a week and oftentimes it's after going for a walk or it's just that like I got out of the shower and I just really need to sit right now like I my body like is almost pulling me <laughs> to drop down and to and to be in a space of clearing and listening so
0: how would yeah. you describe the space that you get to when you
1: feel clear Hmm. I, I don't know. I I <laughs> um I mean the words that are coming into my mind I'll just say, but they're they're not gonna really I feel they're not gonna really do it justice. Um I feel stillness and I feel like I've um I'm I'm plugged into a level of energy, a circuitry that is not of me. I I feel um, deeply aware of the edges of my body and their dissolution. You know, like when I'm really deep into a meditation practice, my... The edges of my physical form start to dissolve. I can't, I, I guess I could if I turned my mind back on to go back into sensing and feeling the physical. I would feel the edges again. But when I'm in a place of, of deep practice, there's an element of weightlessness. I feel like I'm I'm grounded, but I'm floating. Um and I haven't gone anywhere, but I feel that I've, I've gone far outside myself and yet I'm still very much there. Do you um, still feel like your joy when you're there? Um, mm, I've never thought about that. I don't know what that means. I don't think so. I think, I think it's a space where. where that doesn't mean anything, you know? Like who I am doesn't mean anything. And, and what I didn't say about my practice that I think is um, is useful to share, because it might, it might be useful for others. About five or six years ago, I started pulling cards. Um, so I would sit in meditation and I have two sets of cards that I now pull from regularly um, and one has cards that are about the the directions you know the north, south east west the directions. One of this one of the sets within this single set is about the chakras and the other is about the um, archetypes you know so like the wise woman or um and um or some of them might be even like compassion or an element of, of calling something in and so probably about once a week if I'm really sort of in a steady rhythm I'll pull cards so after I sit and meditate and get to a place of of real stillness and clarity I'll drop in a question something I'm working with And then I will, yeah, ask the universe to show me the answer. And calling in all of the beings of of lightness and love in the universe. And specifically, those that I feel are surrounding me in this life. And then I'll pull cards. So I'll ask that question, and then I'll pull one card from each of those three and it's like it's just it's that I don't even know I don't have words um for the magic and clarity of what that shows me and I know that getting really clear in myself and connected with earth and connected with stars and and you know, sort of tuning the rod that is the central axis of my body creates more and more and more refinement and clarity about the message that I hear. Like, I know what it means. You know, it's like, I'll read something and I'm like, well, shit, of course, you know? And so the two de- the two decks of cards, decks of cards one is that, that three, it's called Rainbow Warrior Goddess. And The story about how I came to learn about it involves a like little sprite of a woman on a train between Berlin and Amsterdam. Um, So that's like its own funny thing or fun thing, beautiful thing, like the universe showing up in a really lovely way. And then the other is a set of cards that's all um, connected to earth. So it's, it's beings that come from indigenous, you know, sort of populations indigenous medicine history and and so when I pull from those cards I'm asking a question usually of like what characteristic do I need to embody and call in right now to show up in the best way I can in this world and that almost not almost it always it's like of course of course um so for me some meditation practice is um it's about getting clear so that I can know what I'm here to do so that I can do it well. And I think as a scientist and someone who has like been trained to be logic driven, you know, what has been the powerful connecting line between these things is there is energy in this table. Mm-hmm. it's vibrating. There is energy around us all the time. The things that we can't see or touch that are, are moving. I mean, you can even just think microscopically it's happening yeah. all the time. And so for me, I, I feel it in my bones and, and in my in my being as true. And yet I also know that the logic mind really over rotates on like, well, I don't know. You have proof for that. Like, is that, and it's, oh yeah, that's my ego trying to turn up the volume so that the volume of my intuition and my trust in what is intuitively around me doesn't take up too much space. It's like, okay, thank you for that. I'm okay. I got this. You know, I am clear. I do trust this. I am safe. Yeah. You know, I don't need you to turn on the logic piece real loud again, because it's not <laughs> actually what I need. Right.
0: So. Um, back to the, um, clarity or to the, not clarity. You just said that to, um, the stillness mm. and it was cool. You talked about the lines of your body kind of like not being mm. really fully lines, like how long after you started meditating and, I know you started yoga and stuff as a late teen, but when did you actually start meditating and when, what did you start to notice first as positive like changes that made you want to stick with it? Mm -hmm. And when did you start finding this like deep stillness? Mm -hmm. Do you remember when those things started happening and how can you like give people hope about the process of moving through meditation?
1: Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful question. So the first time I experienced what I would call you know sort of the entering into the first phase of samadhi you know the sort of dissolution was when I was probably 22 23 and it was in shavasana at the end of a very sticky intense, but like deeply integrated yoga practice. So it was when I was practicing ashtanga a lot and I was in a room full of people and it was a very full class. And the class had that energy of like connection and flow with the breath. And you could just feel that the whole room was moving with the same breath. And at the end of the practice, we land in Shavasana and my teacher at the time played a singing bowl And I felt that at the edges of my skin, and then it felt like it just went away. And I felt also almost like I fell through the floor. And I vividly remember that experience of like, what is this? And as meditation teachers will talk about like you, you taste it and you're like, Oh, I want to get more of that. So I thought that it was like, the singing bowl. I thought that it was that particular teacher. I thought that it was that style of yoga. I thought that it was, you know, a lot of things. Um, and so for me, meditation did not come naturally or easily. So I, I was, I am a very physical person. I, I have learned over the years that there's a certain amount of almost wringing out of my physical system I need to do to be able to sit. And so for a long time, that same teacher was like, you can't be a runner and be a Yogi. And I was like, well, shit, I'm going to be more of a runner than I am. You know, I was like, and it it was, it was, there was truth in that because there was, there was so much damage I was doing to my body and running that was making it difficult for me to actually go deeper into an Ashtanga practice because so much of the Ashtanga practice is about coming into a place of you do the same thing every time and you watch it and you're coming into a place of where the breath is what you're riding in the practice you're not doing the poses the poses are doing you you know and so she was right i didn't like the answer but it was you know it was a good it was a good teacher because it, it it pushed me away but then what happened is i i had a, a regular saturday morning class that i would go to after i went for a long run because in my 20s i ran a lot i ran um half marathons all the time and dabbled in longer distances and we would go for a long run and then we'd go to yoga class afterwards and the teacher started teaching yin yoga and i did yin for the first time and i was like this sucks and also this feels amazing so it was like the 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 agitation. I loved the um, the sort of stickiness of like pushing into something. I loved the instruction to notice where you feel sensation and watch it sort of expand and watch it move. I, I loved it. And Yen so it is so hard, phew, but it's yeah. awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I warn I need my to be... students. Yeah, I warn them because it's like this is not restorative and is not no. comfortable. No. Um, so I just want you guys to know that before we start this practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, yes, it's not supposed to be comfortable. So yeah. if you had that idea, I want you to know that now. <laughs> it's <laughs> going to be really annoying to your brain, too. Just exactly. To, it's so much harder for me. Than yeah. The Vinyasa class, because you have to be okay being uncomfortable and being still.
1: Yes. And this was perfect for me, right? Like I yeah. wasn't good at being still and I ran away from discomfort. Like it was my job. <laughs> so I, I loved the, I loved the effect. I mean, I felt that, that, that flush of energy after a, a, a yin practice that was like, I just moved some really interesting stuff. Like, and I, my mind felt clear. And so it, it was my Saturday. It became my Saturday thing. And then, um, The person I was dating at the time bought me a gift certificate to go to a a workshop with Sarah Powers for my birthday. So I went to a training with Sarah Powers and then I started teaching yin myself. And and as a teacher, I I then got really deep into Pema Children and John Kabat-Zinn and these other teachers who were teaching mindfulness. And so my teaching of yin started being a teaching of meditation. And I would find myself having these moments. (laughs) I was telling somebody about this the other day. It's like really kind of bonkers that I was teaching a yin class and we would start in meditation. We would move through the postures and we would end in meditation. And the intention was to really be able to see how the system changed. You know, like we're starting, how are you showing up? Let's move through the sequence that has a particular energetic intention. And then let's sit at the end and notice what you notice. And, um, (laughs) we sat and one of the days I dropped so far in to meditation myself that we were in meditation for like 30 minutes in the beginning of class. Mm -hmm. And that was before I understood what was happening in my own experience of meditation. So those were some of like the things that like, they just happened and, But for me, what I would say is I never understood that running was a form of preparation for meditation for me. So the, the deepest, not so much anymore, but when I was younger, the deepest meditation practices and and asana practice then coupled with meditation that I had were after a long run or after some type of like real physical exertion, I could then still the body And there's a lot of logic to that. Like if, if somebody has a lot of Pitta and and is really, you know, in their head, getting them into their body first and getting them to release some of that fire will allow them to center and still and calm. Um, So for me, it was a combination of, wow, Yin is introducing me to meditation and it's, it's a tool. It's the same. And so the same things that I would bring in as a preparation for a yin pose, I would bring in as a preparation for a meditation um, sequence for someone else or for myself. And the other bit was starting to understand that, well, A, it was okay if I I wanted slash needed to go for a run or do some type of really physical thing. Like that was, there was nothing wrong with that, but that was one of the tools that, that I had in my toolkit and that I needed to use it. And like I said, it looks different now than it did before, but there's still a time where it's like, I know I need a really physical energetic release. And so whether it's burpees or jumping jacks or whatever, it's going to be like, I need something like that to be able to sit. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the long arc of the experience is that like, I got a taste of it pretty young. And then it started popping back up in different ways. And that gave me enough of an interest in understanding how to create the the conditions for meditation on purpose, you know, not on accident. So then I was like, okay, now I really wanna, I wanna learn all of these things. And so I continue to do that. I have a, a tantric meditation teacher training that I'm starting in September. And it's like, I want to spend more time in the tantric aspects of meditation because I haven't fully trained in that. And I want to understand how it feels in my system. And also how does one teach that to others? Um, And so I don't know that I'll ever stop learning it. I think it'll always be a thing that I spend time in.
0: What would you give advice to people that are trying to get there, or what to do, or how how do I sit and meditate? What would I do
1: to start? Hmm. So, I believe that we all have different ways in. I don't think there's one prescription, you know, meaning like I don't think meditation. For, for every person needs to be on a cushion, you know, cross-legged. I think meditation can show up in a walk in the woods or watching the ocean or being really present to sounds. And so I, I think for most people, and this is a generalization that, that's certainly not gonna be true for everyone, one of the best ways in is through the senses. You know, is through starting with really connecting to sensory experience because we're pretty sensory beings, and so sound is really powerful. And noticing the light behind the eyes. So, so moving through the five senses and coming into like touch and feeling the weight of the hands and feeling this groundedness. So, I would say that like if if someone is really new to a meditation practice, I would start with a sensory experience. I would also suggest that they remain really open to trying lots of things, not trying lots of things every day, you know, because you have to give things a little bit of time uh, to actually have a chance to take root. But if you're really curious about Vipassana, hmm, try it you know, so like there's, there's all of these different flavors of meditation practices and there's no right or wrong way.
0: I don't even and know what that word is. Oh, so, so now I'm curious. about it. <laughs> Um,
1: It's a form of, um, of meditation. It's really common in the, in the Buddhist sex. Um, but it, it, it has a prescriptive way that you go into and, um, you know, an insight meditation is a different form of meditation. So there's all these different layers, um, and, and techniques and tools. And, and I would say once you find the one that feels like it works for you, go for it, you know, like don't go searching for five other ones, you know? So like, for example, if you find for me, I, I find that that tantric practices of meditation that really prepare the meditation with, with breath and with moving the breath and moving the mind on the breath in the body, poof, those work for me. They are, they get me into a space of my midbrain fast. And sometimes they don't, but like most of the time they do. And I also know that like physical activity before I sit is necessary for me almost all the time, even if it's just a walk down the street and back, like just moving my body is necessary for me. And so what I, what I mean to say is like, once you find the thing that sparks stick with it and go deep into it and don't dabble. I mean, I've spent my whole life dabbling (laughs) and, and I, I say it because it's not that dabbling is bad. It's just that if what you're interested in is the effect of the experience, if you're dabbling, you're taking the time to learn this new thing that may create value for you, maybe not. Instead of going deeper into the thing that you already have shown yourself creates an effect. So for me, it's, it's sort of that pick the thing and go. And don't, and, and like there might be something, it might, you might come to a place where it's like, I can't explain it. I keep getting all of these, getting emails and messages and maybe Google's listening to me, but like, I keep being told I need to go to India or I keep being told that I need to go study, um, Buddhism. Okay. Like if you get all these messages, that's the thing that might be calling you in great explore it. So it's not to say like, don't ever move off like that first version of the path, but give yourself a chance to be in it long enough to, to notice whether or not it's doing what you hoped it might do.
0: Yeah. When I was speaking to dabbling, when I was leaving LA and I was like visiting cities for the first time about Mm -hmm. where am I going to go? And I was visiting cities like, okay, this is where I want to live next. And everyone was like, oh, maybe, maybe like Austin, maybe like this place, maybe like this place, have you visited here? And it's like, you guys, I could visit cities for the rest of my life, if I go to all the cities that you think I should go visit before I choose a place to move. But at some point I've got to choose a city and move. (laughs) It's like you could spend your whole life dabbling. Yes. Or you could find something that feels good. And now where I moved to, it's been four years and I'm leaving after in five years, you know, it's like, I didn't even end up staying in there. So, but yeah, you could dabble forever, but I think that's great advice when you find something that works, stick with it for a while, especially Meditation and then it might take you somewhere else,
1: yeah. And with teachers, too, like we'll show up and we'll find a teacher, and I'm like, whatever's going on with this, like, there's a connection, I have something to learn from this person. Super, you're there until you're done learning, yeah. And when you feel that it's time to take another step, you'll know. And there's no like breaking up with your teacher, or like, it's like if your teacher is a true teacher of the path and of the practice of meditation or yoga, and really this, this work of union, then they know that everyone is finding their way. And once that person is graduated from the experience of practicing with you, they're going to move on to something else. And that's beautiful. There's nothing personal to be taken from that.
0: So on the, part two of this episode, you're gonna be leading us through a meditation. So I'm kind of curious because you've spoken up a couple different things. I'm thinking, would you like to lead us in a sensory style of meditation? Would you like to lead us in a tantric form, which I was interested in about like the breath and the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think you'd like to lead us in?
1: I think that, that starting with the senses and maybe even the senses and the elements, um, would be a nice way in beautiful cool so
0: thank you so much for giving us so much time and this has been a really beautiful conversation and i've learned a lot and so everyone that's listening we're going to end this episode and then we are going to have joy lead us through a meditation in the next episode so it's easy for you all to find if you want to come back to it it will be its own separate episode so thank you so much joy And um, we will continue this in a few minutes.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you guys for listening. We hope you stick around for the meditation on the next episode. If you're interested in wellness coaching through a meditative lens or starting your own meditation practice with accountability, check out themeditationwar.com. Give us a follow on Instagram at The Meditation Ward and please like, review us and share with your friends. See you soon.